This podcast is created in partnership with Film Studies and the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences at the University of Sydney. We acknowledge the tradition of custodianship and law of the country on which the University of Sydney campuses stand, as well as the Darug people, where we all grew up. We pay our respects to those who have cared for and continue to care for country. I wish I knew how to quit. I see dead people. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. Get away from her, you bitch! I'm gonna go. Do you want me to go f***ing trash your lights? Take two. Film verse. Film. Hello, listeners. My name is Craig Anderson, and welcome to Film vs. Film. This is the podcast where every episode we throw two different films into the ring, discuss their place in history, their modern virtues, and how they stack up against each other. Which film will hold up, and which film will be left on the cutting room floor. Today, it's all about truth, justice, and murder, as we look at the feature-length documentary The Thin Blue Line and run it past the Korean true crime drama Memories of Murder. With me today are my two best friends from high school, First up, a man who has never been caught for any of his murders, it's Herschel Isaacs. Hi Craig, hi Bruce, great to be back again. And as always, his identical twin brother, judge, jury and executioner of students, <laughs> it's associate professor in film studies at the University of Sydney, Bruce Isaacs. These intros get more and more hammy every time. There's <laughs> something more and more ridiculous every time you introduce I us. I like making fun of Herschel. But then when I when you complained you weren't being made fun of, I was like, okay, i got to do something. Now, we grew up in the sprawling suburbs of Western Sydney, smack bang in the middle of St. Mary's and Mount Druitt. And we'd like to shout out to one of the institutions that made us love film. And for the three of us... It was SBS once a week in a little program called The Movie Show with Margaret and David. What do we remember about Margaret Pomerantz and David Stratton? They did a show on SBS and then they moved it to ABC and it became At The Movies. Yeah, and it was still great that when they moved to ABC, but there was something special about SBS. It really defined SBS and... Um, for everyone. international listeners, SBS is like SBS is a sort of, it's government, but it's a kind of very niche channel that prided itself on do you remember the foreign films foreign films yeah. world movies show, and, and things that you would never stuff. see on network it's like an indie movie yeah. versus a studio Absolute, or blockbuster SBS yeah. was the I indie think that's a good a dis- yeah. good distinction comparison and it was amazing that David and Margaret's the movie show had such traction in Australia they were, their ratings must have been through the roof but everyone I know now who's into movies and of our generation or older, watch the movie show. Mm. Like, everyone tuned in to watch it. And the other thing is, even when I think back to it then, I have difficulty putting my finger on why it was so good. When they moved to ABC, I don't think it was as good. No, it was But they were the same people. But then, and what did it move on to? Remember the other dude that was then did movies afterward as well? And it was never David Margaret. You mean SBS when they did uh, a new version of the movie show? Yeah, it was like a a younger sort of... And had Jamie. Yeah. Who's an interesting guy. I've been on lots of panels with him, actually. And he's an interesting guy. But you're right, Herschel. There's a sort of chemistry between David and Margaret that sustained that show. But they were also of that generation, like... Yeah, um, Roger Ebert and, yep. and Siskel, like Siskel, where yep. it was like two people who'd grown up in the 70s and become hardcore in the 60s and 70s yep. now fight it out over yeah. what they like. And they fought a lot. Yeah, yeah. it was and That yeah. was something. Because Margaret, uh, I saw Margaret as a person who was far less conservative in her tastes. So she, for example, worshipped David Lynch. And I reckon if you could get David in a private moment and go, hey, what do you think of Blue Velvet? He's probably going to go... 
It's not my kind of thing. <laughs> and I do think there were differences in the way they viewed the movies. Um, one quick story I've got that has stuck with me is the review of Dance in the Dark, the Björk film. <laughs> uh, the what's his name? The, um, uh, the director, Lars von Trier. Yeah. So anyway, I remember because I was interested in the film, and I might even have seen it before I saw the review. But but they, um, Margaret gave it five and said it was the most moving thing she had seen. <laughs> and David, and he had done, he did this periodically, and I think I, I'm pretty sure I'm remembering this correctly. He just gave it zero. <laughs> like he just this <laughs> Margaret just said, you know, she's so moved. She gives it five. The camera moves to him. He goes. Well, I have to disagree. I give it zero. <laughs> and he's and the whole didn't he hate everything by by Lars von Trier? Well, because von Trier comes out of Dogma ninety five, yeah. and their whole thing mm. was shooting in as naturalistic a way as possible. So David hated handheld movement. He hated any shaky cam. It was I remember just that. so shaky cam, which became massive. You yeah. know, like from early nineties. But 90s. also in action films, I remember he yeah, was yeah, yeah. getting speed. angry about. Yeah. yeah, he got angry about speed. But also, and he, the and Bourne the, films, he went nuts on those. Bourne, which Bourne. Were the Bourne. Oh yeah, oh, you know the yeah, Jason. Yeah. But then also, I think from memory, I saw his review, I think, of Children of Men, the Quaron film. Now, look, I don't want to impugn him. Maybe I'm speaking out of turn. But I think from memory, that movie is just a masterpiece, right? But I think from memory, he thought... It's too much shaky cam. <laughs> yeah, <he's> like, <laughs> he had this lovely dry wit about it. Yeah, yeah, he'd yeah. make these like he'd make these snide comments. He'd say something like, "Yeah, but what you can't you can't make the camera still for just yeah. a little bit, give yeah. the person a little bit of a rest." Or, or he'd say things like, "I just wish these people would learn to frame correctly." <laughs> and it was this kind of very conservative well, his, approach. And his favorite film is Singing in the Rain, right? Yes, yeah. Like that's uh, that speaks and to the what classical he's era into. is his yeah. thing. Yeah. yeah, but I remember just growing up in Western Sydney, having a weekly show that talked about movies, yeah. because there were that countless, meant a lot to us. countless shows about sport. <laughs> the news has sport in it. Yes. Like the news doesn't have movies in it. No. The news has sport. It's nonstop sports. So movie once a week. That's all we got. And yeah. that just jogged my memory on something. When we knew a movie was coming out, that because Thursday was obviously the release date, yeah. we used to wait for the movie uh, show to come on and we'd be like sitting on the edge of our seats yeah. <laughs> waiting for what they thought and then it would be timed with going to the cinema on the Saturday. Yeah. yeah. And we would we, and, and so I still I mean I still watch a lot of reviews, even though so that's something to the detriment of what I see of what I feel when I actually watch the movie. But watching those reviews, going to school and discussing what they said mm. and then setting up to, to view it for ourselves, yep. that's yep. a wonderful memory. And also, like Craig, you just said that it meant something that there were movie reviews for people like us who were into movies. But yeah. what were the outlets for, for, for speaking about them? So suddenly you had two very important people like important critics, talking about the movies that you're going to see. And I loved testing myself against them. Yeah, so let's say they said that, something yeah. Yeah. and I went and saw it and I would think, why, like, what would be my position on this? Would I disagree? Would I agree? And that was a, a formative thing for me, certainly, watching wow. this movie. So David and Margaret were by far the most important reviewers uh, in my life. But like movies like Philadelphia and, and, yeah. and stuff where you're like, well, we're not probably going to watch that. We're going to watch an action film that year or yep. that week. But yep. then they would make us think we should yep. go and see because it it's important. Do you reckon they created a kind of more mature taste in us? In that, you know, like as, as you grow up, uh, one thing I think all of us got from people like David and Margaret, but just being involved in reading about movies, is that I wanted to understand why this movie won an Oscar. Do you know what I mean? Like I, mm. I wanted to understand, why did they give that movie Best Picture? So I remember Herschel and I, even from young, let's say Amadeus won, and we're like 10, I'd go, I want to have a look at this movie. I want to understand yeah. why mm. they think this is the best movie. 
Right. But it's also like the zeitgeist or cultural capital. Yep. We need to be able to talk about it. Yes. <laughs> Which is weird to think of three boys in Western yeah, Sydney yeah, in yeah. a high school talking about talking it. Talking about it. Because we're not communicating with great minds or art. <laughs> in yes, we were, <laughs> yes, we were, Craig. Yes, we were. We're avoiding to... orange peels thrown at us. <laughs> it goes back to information, right? Bruce, remember you and I had Leonard Moulton's movie guy? Oh, man. That, so that, that was, like was the, the other Bible. That was like us. a huge book. Yeah. And every time we went to Grog and Flicks, which we've referenced on a previous the video uh, store. episode, yeah. the video yeah. store, we'd come back with a bag, load of, a bag load of movies. We'd go straight to Moulton if it was in any way classic. It wasn't yeah. a new release. We'd go straight to Moulton, see what Moulton had given it. And I'll tell you the most pathetic thing I remember is that at a certain point in our careers going to Grog and Flick's video shop, we would take Leonard Moulton with us. With us, yeah. How sad is <laughs> that? And you'd see something, you'd flick it open, check it out. No, 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 move on. Well, okay. One last story on David and Margaret. I um, was lucky. I ended up working at ABC a bunch. I edited their last episode of the show of the two of them and sat with Margaret in the editing suite. Did you really? Yeah, it was super fun. She was very moved in that last Yeah, she episode. was. Yeah, she was And she was sad like, in the room and everything. That was lovely. And I, it was kind of like That's a full... That's all due to your editing, Craig. <laughs> a full circle thing of watching her as a kid then getting to work yeah, with her. Yeah, wow. But also, I worked with David in, in a show called Review with Miles Barlow and we did a, a thing where it's, it's a comical satire where a guy reviews everyday experiences. He gets harassed by David Stratton about this is my turf, you shouldn't be reviewing things. They meet in a coffee shop, they have an argument, and then we cut to a stuntman starting a fight. But I was sort of in charge of running that that scene, and uh, <laughs> I said to David, it would be good uh, if Miles, the, the opposing reviewer, throws coffee onto you to make you push him, and then we can see you both fall to the floor and we can cut to the, the stuntman. <laughs> and then Stratton goes, mm, no, I, I can't do that. I mean, well, why not? And he goes, I... Because that's what the guy who made Romper Stomper did to me, <laughs> and I don't know if you remember when Romper Stomper he this. would not he didn't he refused to review it, yeah, and said this is a morally reprehensible. Well, film I think he called or? it straight out racist. Yeah, and yeah. and and the guy who made it met him at Cannes, a yeah. big film festival, and went up to him and was so annoyed because he said you destroyed my yeah. box office and set my career back, and this is you know a few years later and threw wine onto yeah. Stratton, and so everybody knew that story about what had happened. I didn't know the story, and I made a big mistake by suggesting the coffee be thrown on. <laughs> but it just speaks to how much power they had as yeah. reviewers. And Margaret openly said, especially toward the latter part and the end, the ending of SBS, she openly said that yes, she saw it as her duty to sponsor the industry in some way. She was a, ma a major voice, and that she would go softer on Aussie movies. There were certainly voices of meaning in, in terms of what made sense to us. Yep. What we what resonated with us when we were kids, they yep. were right up there. And books that we read and mm. you know those conversations. Well there you go. Thank you, David and Margaret, for influencing us and getting us into our love of film. Today's episode will be full of spoilers for both the films and the historical events around them. So if you don't want to have them ruined, you should watch the films first. Okay, let's get into it. Take one. Up first, it's The Thin Blue Line, 1988. It's the third film by critically acclaimed documentarian Errol Morris and has become the prototype, is a good way to put it? Sure. For, for I, all modern... The influence of it, like, you could not overstate it. Great. It's, it's, the, it's the prototype for all modern true crime filmmaking. The film charts the investigation and conviction of Randall Adams over the murder of a Texan police officer. It presents many of the inaccuracies and incongruencies in the case as well as the conflicting stories by witnesses, police officers and members of the judicial process. It features a series of talking head testimonies and moody recreations that feature uh, close-ups and theatrical lighting. 
the film is also scored by highly regarded minimalist composer Philip Glass, who turns in a very emotive score. On its release, the film received many awards at various festivals, but also strong criticism for its stark portrayal of the policing and the judicial systems, with Morris himself describing the title's meaning as an ironic, mythical image of a protective policeman on the other side of anarchy. To add fuel to the fire, the end of the film reveals that the wrong man had been prosecuted for the crime and he was exonerated a year after the film's release. Herschel Isaacs, how do you even begin to unpack this film? That's an excellent question, Craig. Um, I've seen this movie a number of times now, but one of the best things about this podcast is that we get to come back to a movie and then you have a completely unexpected and a novel way that you feel about it. And to some extent, that's the way, that's what happened with The Thin Blue Line on my rewatching. My take on the Errol Morris film is that, and it alludes to what you said earlier, he created something truly unique over here. And I'm going to be speaking about how that links to what, you know, is dominant in the world now, making a murderer, staircase, these things, which I watch. I'm an avid fan and, and, and watch our films like that. But I think Errol Morris really tapped into something that had not really been tapped into before. I'm going to say that it's the telling of fact, and it is documentary filmmaking, but with the narrative structure of, and people know that I'm a Stephen King fan, so it's the narrative structure of a Stephen King novel. It's got the pace of a Stephen King novel, the imagination, but it's talking about what happened in real life, and that's quite an unusual thing, and I think it has quite an unusual effect on the viewers. I'm going to talk about three things in particular. First, I'm going to talk about the characterization. Somehow Morris has, has populated the film with characters that existed in real life, events that took place in reality. But these characters are everybody as interesting as if you were to make them up in fiction. You couldn't really script what Morris has created. Swine. I, was, I mean, <laughs> I was curious, but emotionally connected to Randall Dale Adams and David Harris from the very beginning, and, and in fact, it's why my mise-en-scene later on is the very first scene in the film, which for me is a tour de force in, in the way it, you know, I don't want to use the word manipulates, but it certainly does lay the foundation for a response from the audience in a particular way. So I want to contrast that with Fog of War, because that also has a very unique single-handed perspective on a figure, um, Robert McNamara from the Vietnam War. But what that lacks, in my opinion, is what he captured in this film, and that's the characterization of it. The other thing is, the characters are so wonderful. At one point, he's talking about a drive-in <laughs> film that they went to. I didn't really care for the second feature, which is, you know, it's an R-rated cheerleader type thing. I don't know what it was. You know, I told him I wanted to leave. Now, this is a man who's on death row, <laughs> and he's talking about the fact that he doesn't go in for cheerleader pictures where you've got topless young women, and it made him quite uncomfortable. To me, you couldn't really script that. There's mm. nothing you could well, write that could capture asked that. It other really interesting questions, right? Because there's decades of history on the way that documentarians will choreograph outcomes with subjects. So Randall is just... Imagine stumbling on Randall mm -hmm. and you're making a movie and you think, my God, this guy's gold. Even if he was a bit player, this guy's central to this story. <laughs> and then you just hope to get him on film doing some interesting stuff. But I also wonder watching that movie because it's so perfectly, I guess the word I would use, it's so perfectly choreographed as a narrative, exactly as you say, Herschel. I wonder if some of it isn't set up at various points. Oh, no. I mean, I don't like to think that because, no, no, I know we don't want, I, I, I know we don't want to think it, but I don't have... Hang on, is this a leading question? Do you know if it was? No, no, no. Look, okay. well, no, no, no. Because, okay, we just know there are many, many documentaries. In, like, okay, Nanook of the North, 
famous documentary, kind of anthropological realism. But we know that Robert Flaherty set lots of stuff up, that he would get sure. the Inuit to act in certain ways. And I guess I'm saying, why would that hurt Morris's film? If it, Let's say well, Randall I says this, yeah. and then you go, hey, Randall, could you tweak it? And I'm not saying that happened, but you, you, you're, you're, you're actually creating a narrative and character arc. Yeah. Because it seems too, too perfect. No, but I think if you, it, it's, it's like sifting for gold, but yep. Errol Morris is just very smart and knows yep. the character brings story. It's certainly edited so, many so people, brilliantly. But it's, it's, yeah. it's about character. Like if you film someone for long enough and ask them the dumb enough questions, you will have non-set up, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. but you have got parts of the character you wouldn't want to show normally. Yep. But a smart filmmaker shows something that makes you think something else of this character. And it totally... I completely changes, a, agree like, with Like that, a sporting yeah. event, it changes the game if a dog runs yeah. on the field. It's like, but clearly that's not all he's doing, right? Because this is the movie that really leads us into that kind of, you know, it's been called the postmodern documentary. Yeah. This is the movie that says, hang on, I've got a whole bunch of amazing footage. I've got these crazy characters. I've got the most vivid setting you can imagine. But then I'm going to do my own recreations as well. I'm going to do all of these strategic things to try to persuade you as well, a documentarian. Well, yeah, I, I think we'll get onto that towards yeah. the end of this discussion because <laughs> I know that's where I'm heading okay, in my good. opinion. Yeah. Uh, Herschel, think, what are you... Uh, sorry. I think Morris is more... I would argue that he's more generous than the later directors and the later creators. Mm. When you look, when you sit back and you watch Randall Adams and you watch Errol Morris give him three minutes, sometimes four minutes without interruption, no edits, and you just listen to him tell his story, mm. he tells wonderful stories of the sheer randomness of him ending up in a particular place ending up arrested, and then ending up on death row, it's its incredibly moving. Mm. So that's the first thing I'm going to talk about, the characterization of it. I argue that that is completely unique, and, and this is the beginning point of it. We learn of that later on as well. You mean We're, toward, like, the staircases, you're making so a murderer? In, 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 you know, in the, I it, just watched Capturing the Freedmans two oh, days ago. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Speaking of character. I'm, I'm still overwhelmed by it. What it's about so, is that your first so, watch? I've that? never seen it. Oh, it man. It was Somebody, so overwhelming. Wow. It's got to be one of the greatest documentaries ever yeah. made. Have you seen the Robert Durst? documentary yeah, the, yeah. Um, Jinx yeah, Jinx yeah. which is good but so I don't think it's anything on well he was sentenced he was sentenced to life in prison four days ago really so wow. because of COVID it was delayed that and long and that's the documentary because remember they catch him on well he yeah. said, oh, no, this is he, said I killed them all. he said I killed them but all but it's interesting that clearly even just talking about this you can see Errol Morris is pointing the way to this oh absolutely but can you as look, a methodology have you guys watch Vernon Florida the first film he made is no, I haven't. No, no, no. It's fantastic. It's just... What, is this Errol Morris? Yeah. No, I haven't. No. It's, it's, so it's a couple of years before this one, and, okay. and it's just the biggest collection of kooky nuts in this yep. small town. And it, the characters that pop out are like... They're like Robert Crumb drew them. Yeah. You know, they're yeah, like yeah, yeah, explosively yeah. bizarre. And I think when <laughs> I watch something... a fantastic something, phrase, explosively <laughs> bizarre. I think when I watch this film, the... Thin Blue Line, yep. you can see that char- that mm. he's, he's passed that on, that character... Yep. Building what stuff. about some of the interviews he does? Like that, like the, the is it the woman who's like? Well, let me go, let me come to okay, some, of the, some of some of the remarkably yeah. quirky <laughs> characters. And see, now that's the next. Thing. You can tell what an interesting discussion thing yeah. the line yeah. is. Well, so that's the next thing I want to say. I want to say that what Morris has done is he's captured a tone that, for a documentary at this time, it must be really unheard of. It must be so novel. Mm. I'm also watching Ken Burns at the moment. I'm watching Ken Burns Vietnam, and and that's your really purest documentary. Yep. It's got the still mm. footage. It's got. It's got the your straight the, talking the, the, heads, the, the, yeah. the Peter Coyote um, voiceover. Yep. So it is a wonderful learning experience. Errol Morris wasn't going for that. Errol Morris was also trying to 
manipulate you and engage with you and entertain you. And I think that's what's unique. He's trying to entertain you and he does this successfully. So I want to talk about tone for a second. How many documentaries can you watch where on the one hand you can have a completely clinical forensic depiction of a crime scene, which happens in the first scene. I'll talk about that in my maison scene. And on the other hand, you can cut to a person who's <laughs> one of the key witnesses in the case who says that he has something that is very close to total recall. I'm a, a salesman, and you develop something like a total recall. I don't forget places, things, uh, uh, streets, because it's a habit of some I just picked up. I just stare intensely at people and try to figure them out. And then when, they, when Errol Morris says to him, well, tell us about the night, and he literally <laughs> says on film, a car drove past, and it might have been white or it might have been blue. And okay, then they so say, but those was are the nuggets you're talking about, oh, Craig. Yeah, you yeah. get someone to say that on camera, yeah. you can't make but that's that not, up, And that's the right? point of it. It's not staged. Yeah. And then he follows that up by saying, I couldn't tell the truth, the truth in court <laughs> because I was with another woman. Would you have told the truth? <laughs> now, this is a key witness who put a man on death row. And yeah. Morris is very skillful because it's not offensive. It's, in mm. fact, part of the narrative structure and there's an of a documentary. From the documentarian, right? Yeah. And he's not this, involved. This he's, film is... I think it's so spot on, actually. The tone is so strange. But it's also, like, the mode of address. Mm. Like, documentarians first used to be, I'm supposed to be objective, I've got to tell the facts. But Morris is not that at all. He's a person who's, who's kind of playful with this. Yeah. And I, and I love that. I love the... It's almost confessional. Hang on, I'm a documentarian, but look, I'm kind of making... Yeah. I'm, 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 I'm putting a tapestry together for you. He's, Play, a, he's also exposing the humanity of all yeah. of these people. <laughs> yeah. Leaving in something like that, where someone thinks they're better than they are, yes. then proves that they're not, but he doesn't yeah. make them look bad necessarily. And that's what I want to say. See, but there's no judgment. It's no ridicule. Exactly. Yeah. Playful, yeah, which is great. but at all times respectful, regardless of your background. When um, David Harris says, I woke up having slept in the car park that night, Morris paints an incredible picture of a low socioeconomic, yeah. fragmented uh, you know, structure of life. That's the, the amazing thing about David is that like for most of the time I go, well, you son of a bitch, you yeah. set this other guy up and you're just going to let him die. Yeah. This sucks. And he's got and this kind of glibness about him yeah. in the interviews. But, but yeah. at the end though. But, but about four-fifths away from the end, he tells that story of his brother drowning yeah, and yeah. his father hating him for it. That and it's like all of a sudden I'm like, oh, that just I actually feel, you yeah, I feel so bad for this guy yeah. and I, now I understand why. And it's not like uh, another documentarian would be ham-fisted with that or, mm. or it would do a, sh a crappy reconstruction for that. Or provide like a moral compass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think you're right. Well, like Errol Morris is a person who – I don't see him as a, as a person overtly judging things. And I think when documentaries become didactic and want to like judge everything, mm. that's when I completely lose interest. So Thin Blue Line for me is this crazily performative documentary. Mm. Yeah. I mean, these well, are such we haven't even gotten into characters. the reconstructions yet because yeah, and are we really talk about we, this. I'm going to talk about a reconstruction. Those are themselves a revolution. Yeah, in and they're, but they're also right. doing something big to I think your mind and to yep. the story. Completely. You know? But just briefly, I want to add a couple of other things. I think that for any viewer, a, a, a person listening here who's already seen the film or you've seen it recently, perhaps the Philip Glass soundtrack. Mm. It can't be underestimated in terms of the effect that it has on the film. I watched the opening scene again today in prep for this. I mean, I watched the film probably a month ago. I watched the opening scene again today because I remember watching it a month ago and thinking that is absolutely astonishing. You could not position a film. You could not 
put a viewer, a responder into a place that is better set up for what's about to come, even though I knew exactly what's about to come. So the glass soundtrack is something I want to ask both of you. That for me is probably Morris's clearest attempt to manipulate the, the, mm-hmm. the viewer. Because when I watch it, and you watch the way that soundtrack works to build suspense, to provide levity, to provide a, a kind of catharsis at the end of the film, it's absolutely spot on. But if we ask ourselves this, does that have a place in true documentary filmmaking? And that's why I think Morris is so unique. I think we should come back to that because that's also got to, a lot to do with the, the choice of shots he uses for reconstruction, yep. how he lights it. Like all of that is doing And I think things. it's also important that Glass is a kind of composer as well. He's not a classical composer. Yeah. He's extremely modern. So that idea of seriality, like is a really interesting... For example, that does not exist in... You, there are no classical Hollywood movies that have a score like exactly. that. Exactly. And the, the right, thing yeah. is, Wagnerian stuff, like Star Wars, that it does character and mm. then it tells you how you must mm. feel. Like the big motif. Yeah, the yeah. Character and motif, it yeah. makes you go, oh, yes, I feel like this right now. This is a good or bad yeah. thing. Whereas this music is minimalist. It's yeah. cyclical. It's bizarre. You it's know, definitely it's, ambiguous but in it, the way it, that it, it attaches to things. It like opens it. up feelings, but yeah. it doesn't yeah. necessarily say how like you should feel. You. And, yeah. and the interesting thing about it is the music supports a gamut of emotions. You yeah. feel different things, and yet the music yeah. is leading you and supporting you as you become closer and closer entwined in the story. Mm-hmm. Even a very a wonderful scene, which I'm probably not going to have time to talk about here, but when, um, when Randall Adams talks about the interview he has with Dr. Death, which ironically, of course, is the character who was to be the intended subject of Errol Morris's film, and only by coincidence it ended up being um, Randall Adams. When he talks about that, the music that accompanies that interview scene is just overwhelming. Yeah. I just want to cycle back to that final point where what I want um, the listeners to ask themselves is what is the obligation of a filmmaker in telling a story when the content of the story is in fact uh, documentary or it is in fact um, it's real life? And, and I'm, I've always been fascinated. We've talked a lot about that. I've always been fascinated with Umberto Eco's novel, The Name of the Rose, where mm. he said that once I've written it, it's got nothing to do with me. It's up to your interpretation. Mm. And, and I'm, you know, I have a sympathy, I have an empathy for that kind of position. Because I think Errol Morris, Morris is a genius at presenting that. Take what you will from this, because it is, um, it's his story, but it's told through um, the eyes of these protagonists that are absolutely wonderful. Just a couple of very quick things. For people who know Truman Capote's In Cold Blood, on watching this recently, I kept thinking of Dick and Perry. Perry being Randall Adams and Dick mm. being David Harris and the randomness of where their lives have taken them, the sadness mm. of what society has done to them. I couldn't get that out of my head. It struck me so strongly um, the, the time I saw it. Finally, I want to say there's mystery in the story to the very end. So it's Hitchcock all the way through, even though it's real life. Now, how many things well, could the you mystery, talk about that? And yeah. you know what's amazing about it? It's a documentary, but the mystery builds to that, you know, unbelievably glorious moment where there are no heads on screen anymore. It's just a tape recorder. And it's a smoking gun. Yeah. There's a and smoking gun and it's a tape recorder. That, that tape recorder for me is such an interesting tool in the documentary. Like but what what do we attach to that tape recorder also and that it's, voice? It's 1988 and you look at the shots of that tape recorder. Amazing macro. They look like awesome. Lens. They look like, um, you know, like Soviet era, fantastic, <laughs> uh, powerful lenses, yeah, you know? Yeah. And and the recreations, this is what the storytelling element that I, I'm a 
obsessed with is the lighting in some of those nighttime stuff. Yeah, looks like giallo. It yeah. looks like we're all of a sudden well, in. You mean the a, level of a stylized? Just talk magical... a bit about the giallo thing, Craig, because well, I, I think that's spot on. Like the level of stylization. Yeah, I mean the stuff. most stunning sequence is the the recreation of the two cars side by side. Yeah, and the red siren that is a motif. It plays as a um something that bounces back and forth throughout the thing. It's just a shot of the full screen red police siren yep. moving around. And, and it accompanies the red light on the building that opens the entire yeah, film up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, the red landing lights mm. or helicopter lights on the skyscrapers and then be in the first scene, and I'll talk about mm. this, it becomes the, the rotating I police think, lights. like that point is so important because people who haven't seen it, I mean, I hope people go and watch it after this, listen to this, but... It's hard to even communicate how stylized this film is. Well, the blacks we are crushed. We don't assume this with documentary. It, it looks yeah. like um, a Technicolor or, yeah, yeah, or yeah. a Walt Disney yeah. painting. The, the, they've deliberately oversaturated everything. Yeah. They've made all the blacks really dark and the whites mm. very not completely white. So yeah. it's not like yeah. Kubrickian white. Yeah, yeah. But it's still beigey. Yeah. It's it's dirty. But everything looks so stylized. Like the images stick with you afterwards. Yeah. As what well about the, the, music, the spilled you know? milkshake? When the oh, milkshake that, oh, yeah. the yeah. um, that super slow mo of the milkshake yeah. flying up is just the most glorious thing in the film. And I was just going to say, to appreciate how far the documentary form has come in Thin Blue Line, all you got to do is go back and check out 1940s and 50s documentaries. The kind of stylization we're talking about is unthinkable in those yeah. traditions. You just would never have it. And so the fact that a whole voice comes up where... You're doing two things. You're stylizing the world that you're trying to open up for the viewer, but then you're really calling to question, what is the truth? How do I know what that event was? I'm going to recreate versions of it for you. So there's a whole kind of philosophical question the, about what do we know? And the right? other thing that w that it lacks is it the narration, yep. that an objective voice yes. or point of view that tells you how you should feel, which... Unlike the Burns thing you were talking about, Asha, with And this Vietnam. is 1988, so this yeah. is new. This Well, it feels very new yeah. to see this, to not... And even in, in documentaries before that, like I was thinking, of, uh, you, you feel the documentarian behind the camera asking the questions or you hear it. But in this, it's only people speaking, different points of view, side by side, yep. over and over again. In tying this all together, um, our listeners might be forgiven for thinking that this is a, a work of fiction or it's a feature film that was put together and we just love it. This was a, a, a non-fiction work, so I want to finish off with a couple of facts. Some of them are happy and some of them are sad. Randall Adams came within three days of his execution before a stay was granted. Um, he'd That's an unfortunate spoiler after we've told people, go and watch this movie, go and watch this movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, just well, he'd I've warned them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he'd been handed what's called a 30-day book, and that's given to inmates on death row. They give you a book with 30 pages, and you get to tear a page out day by day until you get to your execution. He recounts that as having been quite an amazing thing that he had to go through. Wow. Um, he was upset. Do you know that afterwards? Well, that's the thing I want to say. You get so, that? Yeah. Oh, he was upset with Errol Morris. Yeah. Yes. The second thing is, is that Randall Adams came out of prison and then he and Errol Morris got into a dispute about the rights over the story and the way that it could be used to make money. Randall Adams was having trouble getting back into society and he was, was really disappointed with what he considered to be the misuse of the story of his life. There was an out-of-court settlement in 1991, but unfortunately Morris and Adams never, um, never patched up the relationship. That's kind of sad, right? It like, is very so sad, sad about can I say, because uh, of the connection with you these know two what's people sadder? in the work. Yeah. Also, I mean, apart from Errol Morris 
he got him out without that film. Yeah. Him, that dude dies. <laughs> you should remember you know? that. Let's not go nuts here, man. <laughs> and the other bad thing is the Texas government, they never, ever paid him, compensated for those Randall 11 Adams. years. Yeah. He You're was kidding. never compensated for his time in prison. I thought that was a legal requirement. The reason is he wasn't compensated because of a technical, because of a legality in that he wasn't entitled to it because of a stay of execution at a certain point. So it, the whole thing... So it's I mean, a tragedy for Randall oh, Adams in every sense. Oh, and the, the <laughs> other thing, he dies, and then it's not for until the following year that they, anyone puts anything in the paper about it because he was trying to be anonymous. So his wow. death wasn't even mentioned for, for months. Well, as the captain in Beverly Hills Cop said, the whole thing smelled of high heaven. <laughs> <laughs> okay, finally, I want to say this. <laughs> Sadly, Randall Adams actually died in 2010, but between being on death row and dying in 2010, he got out of prison, became an activist against the death penalty, and in fact had a go running for a local office um, for government. So he became quite an engaged person. At one of those rallies, he met the lady that was going to be his wife. So for me, there's a great deal of sadness tied around his life, but a degree of happiness as well. David Harris was executed in 2004 for a crime that was not the one that you'll see in this film. And unfortunately, David Harris never resurrected from those events. Did, did Harris ever confess? He didn't, did he? To, to, to the murder that he tried to have Randall Adams mm. uh, put away for. I don't think he ever I don't think he came out and said, I did. I think to, the, to his death, he said he never did it. But as we know that on the film, when Errol, when Errol Morris, or when he's speaking in response to a question, he says, well, a 16-year-old kid does these things yeah, yeah, and yeah. then says these things. Yeah, and then you yeah. know what it is. It, yeah. you, it, it's a sadness about yeah. Harris that is very moving. There's even a real though sadness, you know it's right. It's a kind of class extremely low socioeconomic, low education. And as you say, Craig, it's like a life that's gone horribly wrong. Mm. Um, but of course, and there are horrible consequences. I mean, in a nutshell, it's it's the perfect documentary. Mm. It's, uh, it's, you know, I teach this in honours. It's just, you know, students love it as well. I'm surprised that people didn't like it. But then I remember it's a political thing. Mm. Like... Um, you mean the, by the controversy? Yeah, the controversy yeah, yeah. that people are going, you're not showing cops in the best light. It's like, yeah... Actually, Correct. that's something I was going to say. When you did your little reading before, yeah, yeah. how much this whole kind of re reality <laughs> that we have now about cops, we don't trust them. Mm. You know, think of the whole 1990s in LA and New York about cops. To what degree is this channeling into a kind of rise in our skepticism about the political process, about authority? Exactly. Well, I mean, you look and at it's amazing. the 50s and 60s documentaries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They almost had to be made by the cops. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they had to yeah. say marijuana is bad. Yes. Or they had to say certain things. And they were like social ideological messages. Yeah. Take two. All right, time for our second film, and it's Memories of Murder from 2006. 16 years before he won the Best Picture Oscar for his film Parasite, Korean film director Bong Joon-ho's second film cemented his place in cinema history. The film is a dramatic study of two passionate but very different detectives as they try to track down a serial killer active in an isolated rural town. Based on the first confirmed case of a serial killer operating in South Korea, the film ends with neither detective getting what they want. The film was praised around the world in the year following its release for just about every element of its production and is now considered one of the best Korean films ever made. Bruce, what's your take on this film? Thanks, Craig. Uh, i got to thank Herschel because he put me onto it 
about two months ago. Same for me. Is that right? You got a promotion. Herschel told me we got a what? I, 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 I told you guys that we need to get this into the into the podcast yeah. and just find the and movie I'm, to Herschel's go with. And Herschel's been spooking this movie for like fifteen uh, years. <laughs> well, I, I could say this is our serious that taking. Yeah, we don't listen to Herschel you, man. said, "Watch it, put, get it way off my list." I watched it and I called Herschel after it. I said, "Like I'm overwhelmed by this movie. I can't I had believe to text it. you. I remember yeah. you texted me straight away. And I yeah. mean, I expected something because Herschel had laid the groundwork. Fifteen minutes in, I thought. There's, I've never seen anything like yeah. this, ever, right? And I was so just in awe of it. And I can't say, like, there are lots of, the line I've got here is, the three of us grew up with serial killer movies, right? Mm-hmm. The serial killer movie came of age in the time we were coming of age watching movies. So for us, the movies that I want to reference in now moving into Memories of Murder, Silence of the Lambs, 1991. Mm-hmm. Right, we probably saw it all together at some point. Seven was a big one with Fincher, yeah. mm. right? That was huge. I remember we saw that at uh, Astro. Astro, I, I was think, about to say Metro Astro. Yeah. yeah, Zodiac is is in many ways appropriating the entire spirit and and concept yeah. of Memories of Murder. And in fact, uh, Bong Joon Ho has talked about how what an admirer of Fincher he was. And clearly, Fincher is is riffing on this movie. Right? Well, you, I mean, you both remember mm-hmm. that Zodiac we had, couldn't exist without this movie. No, exactly. Yeah. But you both remember that we had Zodiac on the list yeah. of films that we yeah. were interested. Yes. In. And and it would still I was be supposed to talk to about do. Zodiac, and then I saw this. I thought, the hell with that. Get Zodiac off. I'm putting this on. And soon after watching Memories of Murder again, I put Zodiac on. I've I've probably watched about. 40 minutes now or so. Now, I love Zodiac, mm. but it, it, it is a big watch, and I love David Finch, and I love the detail of it. I love Mindhunter that came later. Mindhunter's, I think, far killer. superior to Zodiac. Mindhunter's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. But Zodiac doesn't, in my opinion, even even come close to what this film achieves. No, no. And so this is... <laughs> I actually had a gag here, and for us... The classic performance of Harry Connick Jr. in Copycat. <laughs> oh. Do you guys remember that? Yeah, I remember. We were so into serial killer movies. Actually, I got Copycat. We put it on. But from a film like that, that it sort of pollutes outwards. I think yeah. of every time Morgan Freeman <laughs> plays the cop, I'm like, nah, that's not for me anymore. <laughs> yeah, so all, uh, Lucky Seven isn't destroyed by Copycat, I reckon. Yeah. Just because Morgan true. Freeman's a cop hunting. He's a cop, yeah. yeah. When well, so, Seven's destroyed by Kevin Spacey. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Hard well, to Seven, to be honest, I saw Seven just recently and I thought. Look, it, it's okay. It's it, it it doesn't hold up, right? I don't think it. I don't think Fincher holds up very well because his movies are so part of a time, mm-hmm. uh, and it, and I think that that's a bit of a curse with Fincher. What I wanted to say is my interest in this movie, which I obviously people gather that I think this is truly amazing, is what does Memories of Murder do with the serial killer genre? Because that was such a big deal for us. The the, the serial killer movie was such a big deal for us. What does it do with the killer? The detective, the setting, the kind of slow burn of the story that you see here, that seems totally unfamiliar. And I wanted to say that I think the serial killer genre really crystallizes around Silence of the Lambs. So I'm not talking about movies with killers in them, right? They're amazing movies. Peeping Tom I absolutely love. Fritz Lang's M is one of my favorite movies. I'm talking about the fact that the serial killer movie comes out in an era in which serial killers become this pop culture fascination. And Silence of the Lambs is a movie that says, 
I'm going to tap into this and make this incredible film. I don't know if people have seen Manhunter, the Michael Mann movie, which That's I great as well. Yeah. love as well. Silence of the Lambs, right. importantly, <laughs> we can't forget that that was only the third film to win the top five Oscars. Yeah. So that's what I've got you. So oh. the influence of it. No, you're right. They go for it. So like, no, I mean, I just why I just was think this that so important to to everyone? Absolutely. And they're growing up. I want to say this as well. Bruce and I were avid readers of Thomas Harris. Thomas Harris used to work um, as a journalist. Then he beca- he got into writing and he he wrote a book about terrorism called Black Sunday. But the strange thing about Harris was he only wrote a handful of books and he wrote them about every 10 years and his publisher kept on waiting for Thomas Harris because he's this huge phenomenon. Silence of the Lambs for us. Do you remember, Bruce, uh, with, a, with a, um, a book voucher, I got that, that red compendium yeah, yeah, of, um, of oh, Red Dragon wow. and Silence, Silence of the yeah. Lambs? I remember. And I always loved that because I had the large print on it. And you're absolutely right to... to Focus to spotlight Silence of the Lambs because it is a magnificent film. It has film. to be a template. It's a template for everyone who came of age at that yeah. point. For filmmakers like Fincher, obviously, you can see Silence is for Chris Isaac in, in that important scene where <laughs> he's at the elevator and he goes, "He's up there." <laughs> that was the start. And there's then some other cameos there. in that. Yeah, right? there's some interesting Romero's cameos. in there. Isn't is he that right? In Do the lift or in that building? Maybe. Yeah, I yeah, don't I know. Think so, I mean, Silence was just such a big deal. And as you said, won the five Oscars. It won three hundred. It got three hundred million dollars. A serial wow. killer movie. Who would have thought that even conceivable? But can I just say, please go. You look at that. The Silence of the Lambs. There is a villain that's beyond villainry. Yeah, <laughs> he's the best. You know, yeah, Hannibal Lecter amazing. is amazing. But the other thing that that film does, which I think, if you're talking about cementing serial killer, it's their place in society. It's the disruption mm. it causes. Yep. Which is different to comic book villains and. The ridiculous, Abs- I've made a hole in the sky and bad yeah, yeah, things yeah. come. It's, like, it's not that. It's the no. way that society doesn't operate properly well, when this is happening. I think it's two things, right? It's post that whole Christian era of the horror film. Yeah. So the monster becomes a psychological figure and is actually internal to domestic life. This is mm. like, a, this is just a, this guy, in fact, Hannibal Lecter is a doxy psychiatrist, right? So it's the figure of our everyday society becoming the monstrous. And I think that is, that's part of the, I guess what I'm calling you the kind of modernization of the serial killer genre. So it's Psycho is not for me a modern serial killer film. Though, no, absolutely. Though not. you have to see Norman as a serial killer. Right. But I, I guess I don't know if you remember this, but this has just jogged my memory. When Silence of the Lambs was coming out and the reviews started coming in, people were talking about a film that was more graphic than a film had ever been, certainly a mainstream film. Now, do you remember us being at the movies and when multiple MiGs is masturbating <laughs> and, yeah. and he throws oh, the ejaculate? I, I will never forget that scene. And I remember sitting it's there going... It's burned into my brain. What just happened? Scene. I was we, traumatised. We would parody that at school too no, all the time. I know. I, I mean, mean we, not, we had a friend, not to an extent. I mean, trust you to go parodying that scene. <laughs> well, we had a friend at school, Scott Cooner, and he keep on saying, I shit. <laughs> he said, I can smell you. And, he, and he'd say that line over and over again. But that film was more graphic. It pushed more boundaries yeah. than a well, film I, had the, done previously. The MIG scene, that mm. was like unthinkable to me. But when you look It at took me a while to figure out what this dude had done. I thought, what was he like masturbating? And, and I don't know if you remember, but it goes to a pretty tight shot on Jodie Foster. Yeah. And she's got it's in her face, like, yeah. you know, semen across yeah, her sure. face. 
Look, that I, was that unheard nothing of. did it for me in that film, like uh, uh, Buffalo Bill. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In, in the mirror, you know, uh, would you would you f me? I would. Uh, you know, that scene, that is amazing. One, I adore that song. Like I love the sequence oh, so yeah, much. You know, I used to, when horses. I teach Silence of the Lambs, I show that. But then I started getting in trouble for it because um, because of the attack it had from yeah, the transgender trans society. Sure. Yeah. But but here's the irony of it: we had never seen graphic depictions like that. I don't think anybody had in mainstream. Yeah. And it goes on, as you say, to make three hundred million. million. Now those that two things don't shock. sit side by side. They they were weird. It was MA. It, it must have just missed out on, a, on an R rating year. Well, it's still ridiculous that they didn't get R. That was mm. the complete politicization of some of the, the American establishment. At that well, point. remember the scene where Hannibal Lecter is breaking out of that cage? Yeah. Even that cage is the most magnificent scene. Yeah. To even construct that, the, the imagination behind it yeah. is wonderful. But when Hannibal Lecter bites the cop's face, it's like he's, mm. it's like he's making out with him. It's like he's passionately kissing he him. He spits and a chunk, And he right? comes away with... <laughs> and <laughs> After yes, they make he out, he spits <laughs> the chunk of no, face he does. I mean... So we had never seen a graphic depiction like that. So just getting back onto Memories mm-hmm. of Murder, when I saw it, and the reason I was so moved is because it creates a characterization that Silence of the Lambs couldn't hope to achieve. And I'm not no. saying Silence of the Lambs writing is bad, it's wonderful. But Memories of Murder talks about obsession of what it's like to want something so badly and you can't achieve yep. it. I mean, I'll go on a limb and say, in my opinion, it's, it's for me... By far my favorite serial killer movie that yeah. I've ever seen. I've actually got I, I written think I think it's the greatest serial killer movie, uh, Memories of Murder, precisely because, as you say, Ashwa, I think the key point is it inverts the whole narrative of fulfillment of the serial killer movie in the American tradition. So Clarice is catching a killer and catching the killer masters the trauma of her father's death. Mm-hmm. You know, like the Hannibal goes, you know, like it'll be <laughs> the silencing of the sheep, right? Mm-hmm. So the lambs. <laughs> I just said the silencing of the sheep. Silence of Keep the sheep, baby. Keep... <laughs> <laughs> um, the whole serial killer genre until Zodiac. But as we're saying, Zodiac is riffing off this movie. The whole serial killer genre is about the forensic catching and discovery of the truth. For me, the connection between Thin Blue Line and Memories of Murder is that they are both courting this radical ambiguity, right? That, yes, we're searching for something, but we can never know what actually happened. So I just want to, so a couple of things I'm going to say, and then I'm going to throw over to a, a general discussion because I think this is a movie we should ch- chat about as a group. Bong Joon-ho goes on to make Parasite, for which he wins the best picture. And best director kicks in the door of any barriers there ever were to non-American cinema. Um, as we said, Fincher is in effect taking the entire temple of memories of murder and putting it to San Francisco in the 70s uh, with, um, with his serial killer movie. I want to say that one of the things that memories of murder does, it takes the, serial ki- the modern serial killer genre that we've just discussed and lifts it completely out of the urban space, the urban chic tech space that represents the FBI or the CIA or whatever these authorities are and brings it to the small town. Um, the small town is a rural center, and you've got a community that kind of circulates around it. So suddenly, you've taken the modern serial killer genre and completely taken away the iconography of the city, of the detective that walks in the overcoat looking at things, of the computer stuff, finding out all the clues, of CSI and surveillance mechanisms. You've got it returning to this kind of earthy connection to a rural town, and I just think... That is something that Memories of Murder introduces that Fincher is going to riff on in interesting ways. I also wanted to quickly say 
and I've mentioned this to you guys before, one of my favorite of all Giallo films, which is an Italian horror cinema, is Don't Torture a Duckling mm -hmm. by Lucio Fulci. And I would say, or I would like to think that Bong Joon-ho is influenced by that film because that's about a slasher serial killer and a detective who goes to a small village in Italy yeah. to find the... And it's for those who have not seen it, please check it out. It's absolutely wonderful. Okay, so I'm going to say that he remakes the film. Silence gives the modern serial killer movie like this evolutionary jolt, 1991. Memories of, the, of Murder completely takes it away from that. And it gets to what Herschel's talking about. Silence of the Lambs or Copycat or Seven, <laughs> all of these movies for me are doing what Hollywood does so well. They give us these wish fulfillment fantasies that everything will be okay. If I'm the detective, I'm going to find the killer. I'm going to restore, you know, the, the, the thin blue line of justice. Mm -hmm. But what does Memories of Murder do? It gives us this most radically indeterminate story. We don't... Can you even <laughs> imagine at the end of this movie? Unfortunate spoiler. You don't know who the killer is. The lead characters don't catch the killer and remain for the rest of their lives, obsessed by their impotence to do this. Yeah. And the final scene, I mean, Bruce, what kind of a movie is that? The final scene. scene oh, when, wait, wait, that's what I'm saying. Okay. That's definitely, oh, I'll, I'll come okay. back to it. Okay. What I want to say about Memories of Murder, it's almost like it's a metaphor for what happens to people with obsession. Yeah. There's almost no killing in the film. I believe this from memory, and, and a, a, a little bit since I've seen it now, but from memory, there's only one scene where there's a body dragged very briefly, and that's the end that's of it. That's a wonderful we, scene. That's we the most never see scene. a killing in action. You know, yeah. you're right, because I was watching it going, where's the scary stuff, if you want to see a scary Well, movie. you know what I thought, I'm, not, I'm okay with that. I, I thought, I don't know if you remember, but there's a slight light on the person, just as he pulls the body out, and uh -huh. I was going to take it back. And, and, and try and freeze it on, on the face. And then I thought, nah, that's not what because this movie's Because there's also that moment where the dude rushes from the side of the road at the person. Is that yes. what we're talking that, about? No, that's what I'm talking about. Oh, right, right, it's, right, and, right. Because right. there's, a, there's a light somewhere. And, and yeah. so I thought, hang on, have they just revealed the killer's face? But I didn't want to go back because that's not... They, they but didn't. it's, it's and, got a crazy but, but, shutter but, speed and yes, the light blows so, his face. And it's, it's just so nuts. stylized. Again, yeah. it's Errol Morris kind of stylization. And that's the point I want to make. That entire chase sequence, I want to contrast that. I, I had this in my notes a long time ago. Do you remember the chase sequence when they end up at the quarry? And yeah. they're looking for the guy with the red underpants. <laughs> now, that guy turned up to the scene to perform an, a, a sexual act, a, 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 a yeah. solo sexual act. Yeah. And he gets chased to the quarry because they're on... Um, and a, what an amazing chase scene, I just wanted to say. And they're on a completely, you know inept stakeout because the cops are so inept for the most part. Mm -hmm. They end up at the yeah. quarry. And did you get the feeling that that chase scene... Did that remind you of the chase scene in Seven? Compl where they come oh, up completely. to Kevin Spacey and then Brad Pitt chases yeah, him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what I'm saying. These, Fincher and Bong Joon-ho are clearly speaking to each other across these movies. But also, right? I don't want to... The, the, there's a shot of the three of them running towards camera and it just reminded me of Jackie Chan and the Lucky Stars. Like, <laughs> <laughs> it was like ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, it looks yeah, like yeah, stupid. Yeah, yeah. What about the opening scene where they yeah. come to the forensic site, or when they come to the site and he's going, <laughs> where's the forensics <laughs> yeah, team? Yeah, 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 Why yeah. are you people standing here? And yeah. then the guy rolls off the hill, yeah, yeah, he falls he, down in a roll. It's not just the, the guy, yeah. it's his supervisor. So his supervisor rolls off. He goes off. rolling down the embankment and then rolls and but gets back up again. It's, it's deliberate and it's smart yeah. and there's that panning shot from um, right to left, where it's in slow-mo and they're all fighting in, and hubba baloo <laughs> at another moment. And yeah, it's like, yeah. he knows he's a, it's a carnival. He's turned yes. this into a exactly. joke. You know? and, 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 and it's that clash between the realism of the rural town versus, as you say, this kind of carnivalesque 
play. But, and it's, but don't the, forget, Bong Joon Ho, that's not new to him. Yeah. Like Host, for example. Uh, for the listeners out there, Snowpiercer. Yeah. You, few things can be better than spending an entire weekend watching everything this guy's yeah, yeah. done. Mm-hmm. Mother is overwhelming yeah. if you watch that. So, what I want to say is that if you look at Parasite, to some extent, it's the same thing. Mm. But the metaphor there is different. Here we've got a killer leads to obsession. There, there's obsession as well, but obviously they're talking about socioeconomic class it's a, it's and those more, sorts of things. But there is a kind of what I love about memory of murder, memories of murder as well. I, there is a kind of class consciousness here that these are people who yeah. live in a kind of poverty area of rural South Korea, and, the, and the they're co- victims. He's gone to a four-year university. Remember yeah. that speech? Yeah. Like it's so sad. It's yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. Those two loser cops, so yeah. to speak, are discussing how the fancy guy is fancy, and, ca- and they could never do what he does or yeah, be because like. Because he him went to this and, place. Yeah. Yeah. And did you feel an overwhelming sense or an awe for? the filmmaker when the house that they're now living in they sit at the breakfast table and it's it's like a proper house and before they were sitting on the floor yeah. and it was yeah. wet and everything yeah. and it was just it's the mo- it's also the modernization of South Korea yeah. so Bong Joon-ho is not just interested in telling a story about a serial killer that's why it's so effective it's telling the stories about characters who are working their way through life yeah. and they've got this purpose but what happens if the most important thing in your world comes crashing down yeah. around you that's what i think is so effective and, and look I, and i think that's a really great reading because the killing and the f- and the chase and the inability to fix the situation is also a really neat metaphor for the modernization of south korea but also rampant wealth inequality that just spirals through the 1980s. So South Korea is a, a situation in particular where, you, where they have major economic problems and disparities mm. between the, the wealthy and the non-wealthy. So I think Bong Joon-ho uses the serial killer genre as a metaphor, but again, as he does in his films, whether he's making a monster film like Host or a sci-fi dystopia film with Snowpiercer, or he's doing a family melodrama with Parasite, he layers a complex politics that just elevates this beyond anything an American serial killer film would, would ever do. I think, and we've never seen it in an American serial killer film. But also, placing these two films side by side, it's character that does everything. Yes. The stories can be simple and written on a napkin, you know, like yeah. a, what, what's meant to happen, yeah. the headline. Because they're formulaic. Yeah, right? and, yeah. They, you know, who cares? But what's important in this, you look at... It's interesting you brought up Zodiac because mm. that's not a film I'm. I'm not a big fan of that film. And I, I like it. I hate Downey Jr. That's well. That, yeah. yeah. All I can think of is Jr. and and Gyllenhaal. Yeah. In in bad you know, crazy wigs and mustaches. I don't know what the <laughs> hell they were. But what is their character? I, I couldn't tell you. Yeah. But these guys, I can tell you. There's a guy mm. that does the most amazing kick in a fight for no reason, right? <laughs> that's the henchman who only went to school yeah. for four years. Because yeah. when it's four year university, he goes, I went to high school for four years. Yeah. And then there's the guy who has his ears picked by his wife for the entire scene. He's lying on his side and his wife is just picking at his ear. Like but what about when the new, yeah. the, newer cop, yeah. uh, the newer cop arrives in town yeah. and he's looking for directions and he comes down and he goes, excuse me, and then the cop does a flying kick? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that when he did the flying kick, I thought, well, this filmmaker's a genius. Yeah. That, I just can't well, believe I, what I've just seen. This is what I wrote in my notes here, that Bong Joon-ho has a sensibility... And, and to some degree, South Korean cinema has a sensibility that is different to any other Asian cinema. Mm. And it's miles different to what we've seen in Western cinemas, either Europe or America. And it's, Members of Murder, is it does the serial killer genre what America could never have done. But what you're saying then, that, that unique tone about it. So I want to mm. come back to the tone with the thin blue line. I think that links both these films. If you look at the tone of the films, they can be overwhelmingly tragic in mm-hmm. both films. And overwhelmingly laugh out loud funny 
in both films. Mm. And how many films can you really say where you can handle both those extremes and you come away with the feeling that at no point was there a, a foot made? Yeah, yeah, there yeah. was no foot placed wrong. Great. It was absolutely perfect. And and that's for, for me what links it. The extremes of emotions without any mistake mm. in between it. And it's so rare And to I find. guess for me what links them so strongly is they're both... And I think we've both read these movies in this way, and that's the discussion the three of us have had. They are both films experimenting in such sophisticated ways with a kind of genre. Thin Blue Line takes the documentary form and explodes its possibilities, and I think Bong Joon-ho does that with the serial killer film, just takes it, inverts the American model, and says, well, I'm going to do this in the South Korean context. And I'm sorry to bang on a bad character, but I just mm. see both of them having characters presented to you that are like the way you don't normally present characters they're not melodramatic very nuanced as well yeah yeah and it's like by the way this person says swine a lot that's how she (laughs) describes them probably because they're interracial but that's what's going on here and then over in this department here it's like yeah this is a family that everyone likes because their son has mental health issues, uh, you know, is I mean, the smartest guy. The like, interrogation amazing, of that guy yeah, yeah. is so subtle because there are lines, they have class and abuse and victimhood. and, and But you look know, at the class reading of the shoes. Yeah. They buy yeah, him those shoes. Oh, that's, They're not the yeah. genuine shoe. He says it doesn't matter. But then that's the thing he picks up after the dude's run over by a train. It's horrible. Yeah, yeah, the yeah, thing yeah. he gave him, which he knew wasn't genuine, yep. but made him happy. Yeah. Probably, you know, like it's so It's a miraculous sad, you know? movie. I'll go on a limb. I don't like sinking into cliche, but that's one of the best movies I've ever seen. <laughs> Mise en scène. Now it's time for our Miss en scène, where we zoom in on one scene or sequence from the film. Up first, it's Herschel. What scene have you chosen from The Thin Blue Line? Okay, what I've gone with is the very first scene in the movie, which I think is just a remarkable achievement by Errol Morris. This is going to be quite a quick summary because it's in fact the brevity of the scene that is so amazing when you consider it in the context of what comes after it. The film begins with Philip Glass's music and it's wonderful. It's haunting, it's setting you up and it's saying that something bad is going to happen. So it positions the viewer very carefully. We open up on the characters and here you see the two protagonists telling you a story. Think about sitting at a campfire where someone tells you about something horrible. You're in the midst of storytelling. And those key opening statements are then, they cut to the revolving police light. And I think that is such an important motif running throughout this thing. And in fact, when you open the film, the red lights on top of the buildings switch over to the red light of the police. And Errol Morris is so clever in this. And then we get the contrast of the characters. Randall Adams, he arrives in town, he gets a job. And what I love about him saying, and this is where, you know, kudos to Morris for allowing Adams just to talk. He says, everybody told me that everyone was unemployed in Dallas. And yet, when I arrive, (laughs) I get a job within half a day. (laughs) I can actually picture him saying that. (laughs) And he goes, so there's no work, but I'm working. (laughs) So he's incredibly optimistic. He's incredibly optimistic. Then I want to talk about what I consider to be a wonderful thing. They cut to some images, and one of the images that I really love is the image of the weapon, the gun that's used. And this gun is shown to the audience and the the gun begins to rotate. Now, by coincidence, Lockie is my 11-year-old son. Uh, About four days ago, we watched Magnum Force for the first time, continuing our Dirty Harry series. Now, the opening to Magnum Force with the Magnum 44, where the gun rotates Mm. in your face, Mm. have a look at 
at the opening to the thin, red, uh, thin Blue Line again. And if it's not playing off some of those pop culture icons, mm. you know, I'm convinced that Errol Morris is working at that kind of level, that referential kind of level. It's really, really fascinating. So the point I want to make about the opening scene is it's dueling narratives in the opening. Two storytellers telling you what's already happened. You're getting informed of what the story is. And then immediately the scene cuts to the forensic uh, demonstration of what really occurred. We've got the rotating police light. And then we've got a summary of the cars coming past, the audio in the background. And then you know something very ominous and horrible has occurred here. And the music really does bookend the entire thing. And from there on, what you're involved in is you will be an active participant in the investigation of what really happened on this horrendous night. Can I say that's a really great uh, summary of the opening because you know what I see it as, that opening? It, it's going to lay out for you the parallel tracks of this movie. One is storytelling. I think that's such a great word you use, Herschel. That's what this is. This is going to be a, a storytelling like exhibition. But then it immediately cuts to the forensics. So... I always look at it like, okay, wait, there's facts and then there's storytelling. But the wonderful thing about Errol Morris's career generally, but certainly Thin Blue Line, he's going to interweave them. He's not going to try and keep them parallel, but we're going to see intersections throughout the film. And I just wanted to say that I don't know where it comes in, but it's a motif that runs through the whole movie. You know the text on the typewriter? Yeah, absolutely. And this idea that text is something that just proliferates. You know, in the movie, it's just there's more text, there's more text, there's boxes of stuff. And I think Morris is so attuned to the fact that so much has been recorded. What do we really know? And I think those parallel and then intersecting and meandering tracks, it's just, uh, it's just a sensationally sophisticated opening. I might be overreaching here, but when I say magnum force and I look at, at Errol Morris and I look at, at some of the images that he uses, and you said the text and the typewriter, I think all the president's men, I was thinking yeah, yeah. all the president's men, when, when he uses the typewriter to say, okay, these are factual, this is bits of factual information that's recorded, mm. but then he questions the factual information that yep. is recorded. Not that's only that, the they genius brought up the sound of the typewriter on the, on the track, right? Mm -hmm. So there's, there's an emphasis of like clack, 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 and that's really important, I think, in the, we're supposed to be drawn to the fact that this is a history recorded in text. But if it's recorded in text, who do we believe? Who's telling the truth? And Morris, more than maybe any other filmmaker of this, of this era, of that era, was really attuned to, well, I am recording history, but I'm also telling the history. I'm making but it The happen. other thing he does with that as well is that if someone is telling a story, he'll cut to the text that's created by them telling, yeah. which I think is fascinating because then it reminds you, the, the viewer, this is not... The text doesn't, you know, it depowers the text almost. Depower? What? No, it no. takes away its, its authority? But it also separates them. Yeah, right. And this is the thing that I find interesting, that what it suggests is, hang on, these are not perfect recordings. These texts cover things, mm. but are they perfectly congruent? How, how will we ever know? I mean, when I teach um, something like Thin Blue Line, I always say that one of the great things that happens in the 80s and 90s is that documentarians start to understand that what if my job isn't to document the past, but to remember it in strategic ways. And if we start to think about it, that's all we can ever do. We can't recreate the past. We can only try to retell it. So I see all the documentaries as a kind of storytelling. 
Well, I think what Morris gets right, what he does, I think what's unique at this point in time, and I think what people are going to look at and say, well, how can we push it even further and really make this into a monster seller like in Making a Murder and things like mm. that? But what Morris does so effectively is he sets up two things and the parallel tracks of the narrative, but for me, it also runs parallel with another form of inquiry, the, the forensics inquiry yeah. or, the, or the police or the clinical inquiry. Yeah. So on the one hand, you're going to be told a story by the protagonists who on death row they may be, but they're wonderful storytellers. And on the other hand, you're going to be presented with physical evidence, clinical evidence mm. from people who are experts, including Dr. Death, who was going to be the subject of this film <laughs> in one of the funniest scenes I've ever seen. In, if it wasn't as tragic, you know, it's absolutely hilarious. But the irony of it is that the narrative content is accurate. And what you're seeing on the clinical side, that's where the inaccuracy well, I was just lies. Go, and that's the irony. Traditionally, a documentary, the story, the, the talking head, the storyteller should be subjectivity. And the factual background should be objectivity. Um, Morris says, well, hang on a second. We, we, we need to start thinking in more sophisticated ways about how these things work together. What if the, the so-called objective record is in fact itself radically subjective? And what if the subjective story has elements of potentially truth to it that we can take? Mm -hmm. and, and that's, I think, that's a pretty radical position to take, like in 1988. I, but I that's think exactly that's, what the opening scene achieves. Yeah. It gives you a narrative content, it gives you the forensics, and it says... From here on in, your journey is going to be a, a journey of enlightenment. You're going to find yeah. out what's going to happen through a great deal of information. Uh, it's just, for me, it's the perfect opening to the film. I was also going to say, uh, when is Spinal Tap? Hang on, let's just check. Spinal Tap. 84. I'm, I'm thinking, isn't it so interesting at this time in the history of the documentary, you have emerging the kind of, like Errol Morris, the kind of performed, I'm using inverted quotation marks, the performed documentary in Errol Morris, and you've got the mockumentary. And we start to see... I was trying to, to see where you're going the, with, with well, uh, yeah, Because <laughs> we're seeing the documentary as an objective thing, which we <laughs> yeah. always took it... We're starting to see it getting perforated, Right. And, you know, Spinal Tap being one of the greatest movies ever made. Whenever someone says Spinal Tap, I, I always think of the scene where the guy died in his vomit. <laughs> <laughs> I love the moment. Or well, the cucumber um, scene at the airport. <laughs> when, when they tell him that the, the, the album is sexist and he goes, Well, so what? Yes. What's wrong with being sexy? I mean, there's no ifist. <laughs> Take two. Bruce? Time for your miss on scene. Okay, so in fact, this goes back to the discussion we've had before about what had Memory of, Memories of Murder done to the serial killer genre. Nothing is more uh, emotionally devastating than the final scene of the film. And I want to describe it as, a, you know, it's a, it's a traditional trope. It's, uh, I'm going to call it like a narrative frame, which sets you up. Like the spectator gets a real like, thrill from the fact that we were somewhere and how are we going to go on this huge journey? And we come back at the end. So the narrative frame is the lead detective, our kind of, I don't know, our sort of our way of looking into this world. Um, he finds the first body. And it's kind of peaceful. It's almost banal in the way that it's shot. It's so beautiful and idyllic. And it's contrasted with this graphic body of a, of a, of a dead woman uh, in, in, in sort of in like a sewer gutter. Mm. And it's, you know, covered it's in bugs and, and bugs. And it's just like, you know, the, the, the horrible kind of invasion of this body. Uh, and I think there's a whole lot of symbolism around the opening and, you know, the water and so on. What I love is that the killers, the, the, the two detectives who represent a kind of very traditional, you know, that reason versus sort of action, you know, or impulse, 
neither they can't work together to find the killer. And there's a kind of, you know, there's that wonderful scene in the rain where, the, where, they, where they have, one guy thinks they've got the killer, but, but they have to let him go. We jump ahead several years. I think it's, is it 13 years that we jump ahead? It's, it's a while. I think it's, from memory, for me, it was more like eight or nine years. Uh, okay. Or and what I love about it is it's now back to sunlight. And it, it reprises that idyllic setting. Of the wheat field, because by coincidence, our main detective—he's no longer a cop; he's a salesman, salesperson, right? Mm. Like he sells what is he? He sells like something. Is like, it IT products or something? Yeah, yeah. Is he's like calling up green, his, green juice or green like, yeah, machine. but it's something very, very banal. This guy used—he was on the tail of the worst serial killer in the history of South Korea, and now he's selling this stuff in the back of a van. As they're driving. Uh, he tells them to stop, and he gets out, and he's back at the site mm. where it all mm. started. And for us as audiences, because of the frame, you know, it's the same as in Fight Club or any of these sorts of, you know, frame-type narratives. You get a thrill from it, like, wow, something is happening here. And you know what the frame subtly suggests from Bong Joon-ho? You're coming to the moment of closure, because that's what frames do. They're supposed to stitch up a narrative. In classical Hollywood, you know, like Casablanca, flashback, and so that's their job. They stitch the narrative to a point of closure. We all expect this of serial killer movies. Like, he's going to find something here that's going to finally solve this. He goes to, I mean, it's so beautiful. He goes to the, the entrance to the sewer, the, the gutter, and he sits there and he just sort of meditates on, I was here many years ago and I lived this thing, you know, in, and, and he's remembering, obviously. And then... Uh, this young girl comes up to him and says, what are you doing here? What are you looking at? And he says, oh, I, you know, I, I remember this place from a long time ago. And she says, that's strange because there was another person here not long ago and he was here. Mm. And I said to him, what are you doing here? And that man said, oh, I once did something here and uh, I just wanted to come back and have a look at the, you know, the place where I did it. And, of course, this guy freezes. The cop thinks... Oh my God! This is the person, and the, and the wonderful moment is, um, it's supposed to be the great moment of realization. You know, I don't know if you when you guys are watching. I don't know what you thought was going to oh, happen. Bloom. Yeah, but I, I thought, what are we serious? Are we going to catch this guy? Because mm. I thought we lost. It's gone. Thir years have passed, and then he says to the girl, "Did you see him?" And so we're thinking she's going to go, "No, nah, I just saw his back." She says, "Yeah, I saw him," and uh, he says to her. What did he look like? And he's on the edge of his seat, right? Or do he stand? And she says, Ah, oh, he was just ordinary. He just looked normal. And mm. it's this, I don't know, like the heights of emotion as a spectator, you're feeling that because she's, she's the only person other than the victims who have seen this killer. And she saw him, she saw him at the, at the site of a killing, but he was totally ordinary. He was not. Buffalo Bill doing his, you know, uh, dance, mm -hmm. right? He was not Hannibal Lecter who's going to eat Chilton for dinner that night. He's not the monstrous. He's an ordinary guy. And he's totally without any marks of distinction. So there's no catching him. So that's, I find that absolutely fascinating what you just said then because for a couple of reasons. One is, it's one of my favorite concluding scenes to a mm. film because if you had answered the question for me, I would have said, the previous part of the film would have been in, you know, in, in vain because it could never have been answered. That's the way it, that was the purpose of the film. Because of the obsession. Exactly. This, this film is exactly. not about helping you deal with your trauma. 
It's about saying we live with this chaotic trauma that just exists in our lives. So two things I feel about the end of that, that, that film, which is, which is so wonderful. One is there's the implication that the, both the bodies were discovered by children. And so me, for me, that's a metaphor for it was like it's a loss of innocence. Mm. And this was the first serial killer that was documented in South Korea. And it was considered to be a crossover into South Korea, joining that group of countries where serial killer mm. actually existed. That's and that was a very big deal. often a trope in European cinemas of children who will encounter trauma and then become themselves violent. So the loss of innocence for me is, is very much a spectacle over here. And that child standing there, just looking into the tunnel, as the child led them to the, the mm. first um, uh, body. But the interesting thing for me is I didn't interpret it exactly as you, you both did. Really? I didn't necessarily Ooh. think... So where did you go wrong? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't necessarily think that the kid was referencing that the killer was here. I felt that the kid was saying it could have been the killer, but it could have been the other cop as well who was obsessed. That it could have been... See, other I see it as the killer. I, 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 I remember killer. experiencing it both times I've watched the film now where I do think it's about the other cop first, but by the end of the scene, I know it's about the killer. I don't know yeah, why, it, no, that's well, how I, I feel. I, I feel it's definitely, ab- I mean, it could be about the other cop, but then there's no reason not to provide a parallel sequence. Oh, hang on, hang on, hang on. The other cop was never there. Oh, yeah, no, so the other cop that. was never there. The other cop only came to the village after, after the second that, murder. After that. Okay, yeah, okay. No, no, it's definitely the the killer, killer, right? It's uh, it's either killer or some or one of those kids who are playing in the village. But I guess what I'm saying is, I don't want want to think of it as the killer was definitely sitting here because that's the beauty of it. If you were to go down that rabbit hole again, you'll still come up empty because there is no No, answer to this. But that's, for me, that's what's so strikingly emotive about it is... The killer was so. I want to come back to <laughs> so the, the killer. There ain't no killer, man. <laughs> I thought it was the killer. I've always yeah, thought. No, I, 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 but uh, but the thing I want to say is, it takes us back to one of the greatest film titles in history, which is this is not, you know, a, this movie is not about just the killing. It's about the memory yeah. of it as well. Mm-hmm. And so, do you guys remember the very last image of this film? Yeah. He, so you know when when she says, uh, and he was there. And he said he had done something a long time ago and he wanted to relive yeah. it. And do you remember the guy's face just goes like Asian and he turns and he looks at the camera well, that's the, the, and, and he goes straight down the, the barrel. The camera is shooting like a 45 degree angle over the shoulder of both the girl and yep. the man, back and yep. forth, back and, and forth. And then suddenly and then he turns move. off her face yep. and looks directly looks into the lens. Now that's a breaking of the wall. And what it suggests to me is if you look at the affect of the detective, it's like I'm... De- I, I'm overwhelmed with grief at this moment, uh, at, at, at the loss of this, this, you know, at this memory. Of, but what of, I felt as well is I felt incredibly, it was for me almost a quite a, a horrific thing to watch because what I saw as well was it was incredible fear and trauma that he will never really get past. Yep. I see a person who still dreams of it and has nightmares of totally, it. Totally. Yeah. And, and, but I also see it as... That is the state of, of our being, that we are trapped in our own past, that we, that we suffer, that all three of us right now are suffering <laughs> in this podcast. <laughs> I think it's heartbreaking. I think it's yeah, so sad it to think that he was just there randomly. It was just yeah. mis- it was fortune or misfortune that he was there. And it's also fortune and misfortune uh, that he couldn't be there when that bad guy was there, you know, when the person yeah. who did it. But that's and that the, there, that, is, there is a witness to that. Is, I love that. This guy was here at some point. You just missed him. Yeah, yeah. I love that. I mean, that's amazing. All these years go by, and she actually says, that's funny because just 
just not so long ago, yeah, there was another yeah, guy, and exactly. I heard, you just missed him, right? How cool is that? But just bringing it to Thin Blue Line again, the randomness of what occurs links both these yep. films. Mm-hmm. You've got your entire world staked on a particular answer, but you have no control over it, and you're mm. at the whim of the forces yep. that drive us and the and the wind that blows. It's just and that word randomness is what I'm going to take away from this, which is these movies um, give us an insight into a world that is randomized and where the world is built in contingency and you miss the guy and this is the person that defined your life. And there's a sadness to it, but something really beautiful. Like, and, but it's know. also beautiful because it's his character. Yeah. His character is the loser. He yeah. tries his best, but always misses out. Always, yeah, you know, he and misses it's, out. And it's consistent, and but that it's is consistent sad. in a sad world for this man. Well, it's poignant as well. And I he, think yeah. in your point of randomness, I think it's two directors that allow randomness. Yes. That aren't afraid to creatively through drama or through the real world or let the real world influence the drama. And it's two industries that permit randomness. Yeah. Like the Korean uh, film industry uh, where Bong Joon-ho is working and let's say independent documentary with really independent kinds of funding models that enables Morris to be able to do the kinds of things he's doing. Which again, I don't think you could ever do in in a kind of mainstream big budget um, studio type. I think these are two. Uh, this is one of the best combinations we've had on this yeah. podcast. Uh, this has been a fantastic. Uh, I, I've had a. This is. <laughs> this is no. I, all seriousness. This has been a fantastic, yeah. fun discussion. But it's so lively. It's like yeah, yeah. We uh, could talk about this for ages. Yeah. Don't forget to subscribe or follow us on your podcast app so that you'll see our new episodes pop up each week. Either of you have anything out right now that we need I to talk about? I do want to say that I'm trying to make. Uh, this is like my ninth go to try to get into Twitter. So if anyone wants to try to follow me on Twitter, I need followers okay. because I'm trying to use that to build my career. All right, what's your handle? Okay. What, uh, what's your, that's um, why you're struggling with Twitter. You don't know what your handle is. What is a handle? Uh, what's your, uh, what, how do they find you on Twitter, Bruce? Uh, like at, at Bruce, at, at something. Oh, I don't know. Well, we'll like, save it for attempt number okay, 10. Next what I, do, Bruce? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't, I'm not cluey with it. There's a person from a media but group you, in people Sydney. People go, I'm wonderful helping Craig me Anderson underscore great. film or something. Or, no, you know, oh, wait, Bruce. I might be Bruce underscore Isaacs. <laughs> but I don't know. That's a completely well, different person. Ca- That's can't a completely they, can't different you type person. in Bruce Isaacs and just find me? You can type yeah. in Bruce Isaacs Twitter if you're going to turn up. And then see if you can find me and follow me because I'm doing uh, cool stuff. What I want to do, Bruce, is Twitter. <laughs> to help you out, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask I'm gonna ask my three followers to join <laughs> could you. Could you do that? Bruce. Thanks. Okay. Join us next time as we take a look at two very different and flawed interrogations of race. The Richard Pryor comedy, The Toy, and Oscar winner for Best Picture, Green Book. Boys, are you excited for that one? Very excited. That is going to have some conflict. (laughs) (laughs) All right. We'll see you then. Goodbye for now. Take two. Film. Film. Film.